This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach those subjects. I'm happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Bill Creelman, who's the founder and CEO of Spindrift. Bill, welcome to Launchpad. Thanks for having me, Carl. All right. So first things first, let's point our listeners to your website. It's spindriftfresh.com. Just those three words put together, Mm -hmm. spindriftfresh.com. So, Bill, give us the elevator pitch for Spindrift. Spindrift is uh, one of the brands that is bringing real ingredients to sparkling beverages. So uh, Spindrift has um, been around for 10 years. And when we entered the space, sparkling water and really all sparkling beverages were derived from natural or artificial flavor systems. Our idea is let's introduce ingredients recognize fresh lemons, oranges, grapefruits, blackberries, cranberries, um, to sparkling beverages for the first time. Now we're, um, as sparkling waters have become more and more popular, we're really helping to offer a differentiated product um, in a, you know, in a fast growing space. Well, there's so much to, to follow up on, but let's start with the product itself. What's the most popular packaging for, for Spindrift? Well, you know, what makes us so unique is um, when you use uh, a a real lemon, a fresh lemon, you have this incredible um, range of flavor um, from a little sweet, a little tart, um, really that can only come from a real ingredient. So um, really our citrus line and our berry line all deliver an incredible amount of uh, intensity of flavor without any of the sweetness or kind of weird chemically aftertaste that you might um, associate with sparkling beverages. Okay. And, but uh, in the, I, I guess I'm asking a more mundane question, which is, would, would I get this uh, in a, in a bottle, a can? How do I? It's in, sorry. Yes. The form for format is in a can. It's typically in a can. 12 ounce can. Yeah. That's right. All right. So let me ask another dumb question, which is, Okay, so uh, sparkling water, uh, how, how is it different from Perrier, uh, lemon-flavored Perrier? So <clears throat> all of the competitors in our space, there's about 220 of them or so across the country, regional brands, national brands, um, that have been doing the same thing for about 50 years. And that's adding something called a natural flavor. Um, and the origin of the product and sort of the ingredients that are in that is sort of not is not disclosed and we're still not quite sure um you don't know product to product what exactly that is what we're offering is um literally a lemon that's been squeezed you know on a monday rushed to our plants on a tuesday and it is that um ingredient and kind of the dynamic flavor that really differentiates us so it's the flavor and it's really the transparency and authenticity of really knowing um, what it is you're you're tasting got it and but but I would have maybe I would have said I I took a look at your website and it strikes me that for a lemon and a lime 
the the, the distinction is the the kind of ingredients, but you also use some non-citrus flavors that probably require more fruit than than would a citrus, would a lemon or a lime. Is that right? So a, I don't know, a berry or a, a, a fruit or a peach or something like that. You probably That's can't right. can't get away with you know with half a gram of of uh, of citrus juice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, we we sort of try to figure out you know because this is all kind of white space innovation and it, it sounds really simple carl you know put a lemon in a in sparkling water really how complicated is it the reality is, is it's taken us almost 10 years to figure it out because you know of course every lemon is different you cut it sometimes it's a little tart a little sweet um same with the berries um you know depending on the time of year um so but really <clears throat> what we feel we're really onto is that it's sort of the incredible dynamic flavor with very low and almost no um you know traces of sugar so it's it's the, for the soda drinkers it's people that are looking for really that full flavor but without um without the calories of the sugar yeah um so let, let's talk a little bit about sweetener a, a a standard i mean we all we all like a little bit of sweetness uh it's pretty hardwired for most of us although maybe not cloyingly sweet right. yeah. um and, you know, a standard trick is to use apple juice or something that is essentially sugar uh, to sweeten the, the beverage. Do you, do you find you need to tick up the sweetness a little bit to make it more attractive? And if so, how do you do that? Do you use something like an apple juice to do that? We, we don't. We don't. And really, that, <clears throat> that really is why it's taken us all these years to figure it out. What, what we believe, you know, you're absolutely right. Sugar is has existed in some form or another in sparkling beverages, you know, in its original state, cane sugar and artificial sweetener systems or diet, you know, systems, and then even more recently, stevia, some of the calorie-free systems. Our, our solve is that we think the dimension of flavor, so when you try a lemon, it's again, it's got not just a little kind of natural sweetness, but it's got some tartness and it's got some bitterness and even even some savoriness in some of like our our um, some you know melon or mango fruits. So we, we we've replaced the sweetness with really sort of you know 360 flavor, if you will. Mm. So we don't add anything. I mean, if you look at our label, it says sparkling water and lemons. Um, yeah. Really, there's there's nothing else. Um, there's nothing else required. Yeah. Tick tick off uh, a handful of flavors so we can get a sense of the diversity sure. of the flavors. Yeah. Yeah, so the core ones are, are lemon, um, uh, orange, mango, grapefruit, uh, raspberry, lime is probably our, our top performer, um, blackberry, uh, um, cucumber. So we actually have a kind of a, a sort of an alternative um, flavor in there with cranberry, raspberry, um, with real cranberries and raspberries. Um, so, you know, that's it's it's quite a kind of a, something for everyone. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, you said you've been at it. It's an overnight success. You've been at it for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> take us, take us back to the origin story. where did this company come from? So I, um, I guess there's, there's two important things to know. One is I grew up on a farm out in Western Massachusetts, um, raised, uh, surrounded by real ingredients. Um, I don't remember going to a grocery store as a kid. Everything you know, came from the farms around us. And then the second part is I, I was, you know, developed, I was a product of the kind of 90s and developed a, 
a wicked uh, Diet Coke addiction. Oh, and yeah. So, Mother's milk. Yeah. Mother's milk. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> 10 years ago, I, I have a bunch of little kids at home, and I was trying to think about, you know, how I could how I could kick my uh, my habit and looked at the space and realized that there really weren't any, you know, kind of farm ingredients the way that I, you know, would have expected or um, and really wanted to feed them. And, you know, here you have really the largest category in beverage and soda and a very big category in sparkling water. So um, didn't realize at that point how challenging it was going to be, but really sort of set out um, in the early years to just figure out how to make the product. There really was no 12-month supply of a lot of these things. There was, you know, a gallon container of fresh lemon juice here or there, but, you know, there was really nothing to really complete even the ingredient side, let alone the process. And so, you know, we gradually built the business, you know, we kind of moved it incrementally forward each year, started actually, Carl, as a fresh product, so we were refrigerated, then we moved gradually to a place that we, the product became shelf-stable, and then you know, we even had uh, a little bit of natural flavor and a couple of concentrates yeah. in our early versions because we couldn't couldn't figure out how to make it without them. And so we we you know sort of proudly announced four years ago we we're getting out of all of those ingredients. So it's been a, it's been a quite a uh, quite a journey for us. Yeah. Well, back back at the at the dawn of this business, were were you an entrepreneur? Were you doing something else? Was this a side thing or? Yeah. Go ahead. I am a lifetime entrepreneur. I've actually yeah. never had a quote real job. So um, took a took an entrepreneurship class at Georgetown. Um, I think the only class that was offered at the time, and uh, had always been someone interested in, in entrepreneurship. Was a kid who was always trying to start, you know, uh, parking cars or painting houses or you know, um, working the 19th hole at the golf course and. Um, so, yeah, I'd always been interested. I, I started a brand called Stirrings, which is a cocktail mix brand. Um, again, a long journey. We ultimately um, found a partner for that brand um, and exited um, at a certain point. So I had some experience in beverage companies. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so I, I would think there, there's there's sort of a supply and a demand problem here. And you talked a little bit about how challenging it is to get this right without using the tricks, uh, sugar and, and, and flavorings. Um, let's turn though to the demand side and in particular the distribution problem and talk to us about how you've solved the distribution problem and, and how you actually get this product in front of consumers and get them to know about it. Well, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, obviously there in beverage, you know, famously, there's, you know, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of different routes to market. Um, you know, I guess what I would say is really in order for us to break through, we really had to establish our own unique route to market and go where the fish, you know, weren't already uh, being fished. And so uh, for us, that actually turned out to be fast casual um, food service. So really mm-hmm. kind of the grab and go lunch exchange where you might go get a salad or a sandwich. Um, partners like Panera Bread and Starbucks and Sweet Green and Kava and Diggin, um, also who many of whom were starting around the same time, they were also looking for a beverage that matched their brand. Um, and, and so we kind of grew up together um, in the business. And that provided an incredible brand halo for us. And, I, you know, I guess what I would say is, 
in my experience that um, the product is obviously critical, um, but but really where you tell your story you know, becomes a really important part. We knew we couldn't go down the middle of the supermarket um, yeah. day one. So we had to find our unique environment to tell our story. And that proved to be for us, you know, kind of the, the cold can in a, in a delicious lunch occasion. Um, and that, that developed a lot of the demand that we now enjoy in some of the other channels. Okay, so let's underscore that model because I think it's a really interesting one. So you, you find someone, uh, typically a smaller player, for whom your distinctive attributes, your uniqueness and, and your deliciousness are going to enhance what they're doing. So in this case, fast, casual, grab-and-go kinds of settings where you don't want to have a can of Diet Coke there. You want something a little special. So you are able to make a case to them. That lets you, although the volume is small, it lets you get people, get your product in front of people who then eventually will go look for it in Whole Foods or, or in a in a broad-based distribution channel. Is that the model? Is that the template? That's it. Yeah. That's it. And really, for, for me, you know, and now I guess it's been 20-odd years in this business. I mean, that is that is really the model. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I, you know, my, you know, when we talk even about new products or, or you know, kind of our own pioneering um, that we continue to do, we always think about the simple idea that you need a consumer, you need to introduce it, in an environment that they, you know, they're open and receptive to the product um, and that there's a story, you know, there's a story about real ingredients and, you know, me standing behind, you know, or putting a product where there's, you know, delicious, you know, local chicken being grilled and it smells wonderful and there's music and it's warm and you're with friends, you know, that's a, that's the type of environment you want to try to find, Ken, um, and it's, it really proved to be successful yeah. Well, Bill, you you think fairly deeply about entrepreneurship, it sounds like. And I wonder if I could ask you the question of when you started out, what did you think you were building that would be sustainable, that would that would 10 years later be really valuable? What was it you were really building that that created that long term sustainability? What, what was interesting to me <clears throat> was that. Soda was disappearing, but people loved bubbles. And, you know, when we talked to consumers early on, they all knew that they shouldn't um, be drinking soda. And ultimately, they would often say they weren't, even though you might look in their fridge and you'd see a bottle. Um, so that challenge of how do we bring uh, a product, um, how, do we re- how do we replace that product but keep that occasion? And um, so my, my hope was always to kind of capture really a to come up with a better um, soda. The reality is that sparkling water, you know, about four or five years ago, really kind of emerged as the heir apparent um, to, to to soda in many ways. And so our, our vision and our, our product type always remained the same, which was not just the experience that comes from carbonation and that sort of joy and pleasure, um, but also having a brand and a product that people can be proud and, and relate to. You know, one of the things that started to happen with soda was that, it, you know, it became almost sort of taboo to have, right. you know, a Diet Coke. Now, if you show up at a 12-year-old birthday party with a 12-pack of right. soda, you're going to be shown the door. I mean, it's, it's almost become sort of smoking in a way. 
and but what we're hoping is that with our product, it's a product that people can relate to, and that it fits in their lifestyle, and you know, kind of serves as a badge for their belief in ingredients and authenticity. And you know, obviously for for me, that is you know brings incredible um, incredible pride. I wish I could say I had you know that clear vision you know really early on. I think it you know it certainly required an incredible team and a lot of twists and turns to eventually you know, get to that really clear definition. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Bill Creelman, who's the founder of Spindrift Beverage Company. Uh, Bill, so I'm just going to underscore what you said. Uh, There's a lot of interesting stuff there. You know, so in at the end of the day, I think what you really are saying that you were building, that you eventually ended up building, was a brand story. Um, and along the way, you you emphasized that there is some secret sauce. There's some things that are hard about formulating and producing. But ultimately, this is about building brand. Brands are hard to build, but once built, actually have a lot of sustainability in the marketplace. Um, and But then I would layer onto that another key lesson, which is there was some combination of luck, with a macro trend, which went your direction on sparkling water. And in combination with that luck, some some sensing on your part that the market was going that way and a refocusing on sparkling water. And I think those are both really good lessons for, for entrepreneurs. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think it's a great, great summary. I think the only other thing I'd add, and, you know, the sparkling water category had been around for a long time. So, you know, our, our youngest competitor is 30 years old. Yeah. Um, you know, these are, these are Perrier, Pellegrino been around for hundreds of years. So we had the added challenge of also bringing, you know, a product with a real point of difference. You know, our product has a little color. It has a little pulp from the fresh juice. It has, you know, our, you know, fresh grapefruit juice called on the back and the front of the label. These are all, so there was there was some understanding, but we we really had to go go about and really educate people, and as you said, ultimately build you know build a brand. Right. I mean, just the fact that you said those two brands, Perrier and Pellegrino, I, I am always dumbfounded and shocked. Um, and I'm a you know I'm a Pellegrino buyer, but I'm dumbfounded and shocked that H two O sells for you know four dollars, and it's all because right. of brand. I mean, it's H two O with some with some bubbles, right? And so it's a the brand is everything, and and those brands are incredibly valuable for literally decades, you know, literally like a hundred years. And so, you know, especially I trained as an engineer, I'm always hesitant to recognize it, but brands can be super powerful and a really good answer to people's question of what are you building that's sustainable can be I'm building a brand. That's what I'm building. Yeah. Yeah, there's some and there's some great ones out there. I mean, you know, Perry and Pellegrino are two of the really sort of wonderful trademarks. You know, that have that have you know for generations have captured people's imagination. So there was a there was a high bar that was yep. set prior to us coming. Yep. All right, talk to us a little bit about about financing. So if I am to believe Crunchbase. Um, or maybe some of your materials. You've been at this for ten years. It must have been around nine years in. You raised twenty million bucks. Um, so tell us a little bit about the financing of this journey, and and maybe some of the twists and turns along the way. 
Yeah, we um, so we knew we were getting into, you know, a challenging space that was going to require some capital. And, you know, my philosophy on this is we when we raise money, we did it for a very specific purpose. And, you know, what we try to do is um, achieve break even uh, uh, against, you know, a single set of objectives and then raise whatever is necessary against a new set of objectives and try to bring the try to bring the business back to break even each time. So, um, you know, we I think we've been disciplined about that. Um, the, the real kind of capital investment um, has gone into, um, you know, really trying to kind of break through in each of the channels we've gone into. So first food service and really kind of get the brand established and then gradually um, into, you know, more traditional channels and retail, grocery, et cetera. You know, it's, it's obviously an expensive. I mean, I think everyone is aware grocery in particular is, you know, can be expensive or getting the product on the shelf and distribution and obviously all the brand awareness um, that that is required, you know, against all these, you know, really well-established players. So um, with that said, you know, we're, we're, we feel now um, – we, you know, that was the right investment at the right time. As, uh, as the space is, is really starting to turn on, and more and more people are switching to sparkling water, we feel we're, you know, well positioned. All right. Well, I want to turn now to a geography question. Um, you know, this this is a heavy product, and I'm wondering how you've thought about. Uh, geographic expansion, can this be nationwide? If so, what do you have to do to put in place national distribution for a for a sparkling water product? So we, we actually, we, we went national almost right away, Carl. And uh-huh. um, it's actually an interesting kind of beverage dilemma because what you see very often is when these categories become popular quickly, there's two or three brands all kind of competing and they take on, you know, a strong geographic or, you know, association. Um, think about Calistoga. Or, yeah. or, yes. Yep. And even and especially in sparkling water yeah. over the years, we have these strongholds of polar in the Northeast and, you know, Calistoga, as you mentioned, Poland Spring, et cetera. We, we really, you know, once we, we'd worked so hard to establish our point of difference, we really didn't, Want um, we want we were very trying to be very careful about not having a whole bunch of copycat brands kind of jump into the space all at once. So, you know, we we actually made the, the decision, um, which is pretty atypical, um, to go national almost right away. So we began producing product on either side of the country and really kind of building it from the coast in. Um, so, you know, it was not from a supply chain standpoint from a kind of human resource, it was it was quite challenging, but um, I think it served its purpose because um, now actually our brand is, you know, in, in, from, a, from a sort of distribution standpoint, it's actually equal between the East and the West Coast. Wow. All right. Well, Bill, that takes us to the end of the show, and it was super interesting, and thanks so much for making the time to join us. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Carl. All right, you can check out the company at spindriftfresh.com, spindriftfresh.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.